Let's take our Bibles to James chapter 2, verse 8. James chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to be reading verses 8 through 13 and looking at the kingly or the royal law of love. The kingly or the royal law of love. We've been at the series a couple weeks now. I've been gone for a week, but it's been a few weeks, and now we're up to James, and we have one more sermon on in the latter half of chapter 2, but this morning we look at the kingly law of love. Well, with our Bibles open, let us read the Word of the living God. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's Word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we're thankful that we can come around your word, around the table of your word, and learn from you. And we ask that your spirit would help us in learning your word and applying it to our own lives, that the kingly law of love would be evident in us. Oh, hear our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So who do you show favoritism toward? I ask that simply because it appears favoritism is, well, seems to be a perennial problem, not only in the church, but in families. We go back to Jacob. You remember Jacob? He had a wonderful son. His name was Joseph. And of course, Joseph was favored above all the other brothers. The other 11 were a little bit bummed about that, and you know what that favoritism led to, don't you? Quite a nasty episode. If it wasn't for God's wonderful providential hand, well, you know the rest of the story wouldn't have happened. But favoritism is obviously a problem. It's, it's different, the idea. We're all going to have friends. We're all going to have people that we're going to be close to. But you might have a son or a daughter. That son or daughter is favored because they're smarter than the other sons and daughters. They're more athletically gifted, and so you do spend a little bit more of your time with them and favor them, and maybe you don't even realize that you are favoring them. Again, this is a perennial problem. Is that happening in your house? Is it happening among us as the church? Do you have that problem? Do I have that problem? I know, everything's crickets right now, nice and quiet. So, no favoritism. We don't got no problems. The quieter it is usually, the more guilty we are. 
because I do believe favoritism is a kind of acceptable sin. It's almost one that doesn't look so bad at first, at least in the eye of the one that's favoring. But what we find in our text and in God's Word is that it breaks the royal law of love. It is an egregious sin within the body of Christ as James is instructing Christ's church in the first century, and the Holy Spirit is instructing us this morning. And the reason it was so egregious is that, well, if you look at the context of your Bibles with it open, you will see that they were favoring the rich. They were favoring those with more money, and of course, they got the better pews. They got those special pews with, that were just more spacious and plush. I don't know if there were more spacious and plush pews because there were no pews in the first century. It would have been a place of position probably in the front. In our church, we are all in the back. Favoritism must be, we've got to sit farther back, not farther front. Different culture, different time. But James is very adamant when he speaks about the poor. He says this in James chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom He promised those who love Him? The very ones that they are excluding or discounting are the very ones James exalts, doesn't he? He makes much of the poor. Will they not inherit the kingdom of heaven? So why are you not favoring them but only the rich? I mean, this is crazy. This is madness. If we all in Christ Jesus inherit the kingdom of heaven, how can there be favoritism? I mean, that's what he's teaching, isn't he? I think we need to be, this is quite a problem. Because every single one of the person I see out here, no matter your station in life, in Christ Jesus, you are an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven. No, you're not more, and she's not less. No, you are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. Thus, how can there be favoritism? How can it be that you're favoring the rich at the expense of the poor? And again, James goes out of his way that the poor are exalted, as you see in chapter 1, and the rich are humbled. He's trying to make that point because this favoritism appears to be a real problem in the body of Christ. Maybe in individual families, maybe in our church, maybe in your family. But every single son and daughter, husband and wife, and every member of the body of Christ here who are in Christ are inheritors of the kingdom of heaven and thus favoritism ought not to be. Favoritism ought not to be. And especially when we come to the royal law of love in verse 8. If you really keep, or you could even translate that word, if you really fulfill the royal law found in Scripture or according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. You do well. Or you do good, kalos. You do good. It's not so much of your righteousness, but you do good. This is a good thing. 
if you are loving your neighbor as yourself. It is in that in which you are really keeping or really fulfilling the royal law of love. Now, when James is quoting this little section in a Jewish context or primarily Jewish context, most likely, most of his hearers would have remembered Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the ancient law of love that you find in the Torah, which says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't be holding grudges against the neighbor you love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And just so we don't pervert who neighbor is, because I could undoubtedly, you could undoubtedly imagine in a Jewish context that if you were an alien or a sojourner or not a Jew, you might not come under the same law of love. Ah, but you're wrong. You do. And that's where Leviticus 19.34 comes in. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. For you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I love it at, each, at the end of each. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. Listen up, O sons and daughters of the living God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Already in the Torah, we have this, this radical law of love, don't we? And in, in, in actually, this is what Jesus quotes himself in Matthew chapter 22. Of love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes so far in making the royal law of love a radical law of love when he says it on the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Oh, no, no, no. You could, it's like, there must have been a pause there. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Love your enemies. Why would I do that? Right? Now, of course, we're, we're a church crowd. Oh, well, of course, because the Bible says so. But why would I love my enemies as myself? Well, because the law comes out of God's character. And what do we know about God's character? in the law or in his word is that he loved his enemies in the sending of his son Jesus who took the penalty for his enemies on the cross to make him his friends and his sons and daughters and inheritors of his kingdom and all things for all eternity. That's the reason. That's the reason why the church is called to love her enemies. It's an emanation. It emanates out of God's character and we are being called to be like, be holy as I am holy. Love your enemies. And this clearly, throughout the epistles, is a priority. 
the priority of the law of love really cannot be doubted if you read the letters, as you read the Gospels, as you hear Paul write to the church of Rome in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except, oh, except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The law is fulfilled as we love. That's the one debt that we are all called to live out, the debt of, his, of love. Now, he continues on to describe that fulfilling of the law. The commandments do not commit adultery. It's the second table of the law or the table that has to do with your neighbor. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. And what other commandments there may be, he's speaking about the other commandments that are spoken throughout the Torah about the Ten Commandments or the moral law, which you will find throughout the Torah and you will find throughout the prophets and the writings, in fact, throughout the entire rest of the Old Testament. But this priority to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I said it early, how are you doing? How am I doing? Is it natural for you to love your neighbor as yourself? Are you going and waking up in the morning, oh, I can't wait to love my neighbor as myself. It's the best thing of my day. I know we go, we hear this again and again, but often we hear it so much it becomes dull to our heart and to our imagination. Because do I love my neighbor as myself? These words are important. They are here for our, our teaching. They are here for rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. Because one thing I know, I have a bent, unfortunately. Even in my new creation, even in the new birth, even though I have been made a son of the living God, there's still this rebellious heart, isn't there? There's still this bent towards sin. There's still this bent towards favoritism. Because these are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, aren't they? These are those who have been born again of the Spirit of God, and yet still they have a bent towards favoritism. And so do you, and so do I. This bent, this rebellious-hearted bent towards favoritism. And I love what James says in the beginning of this chapter. He says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Don't let the rebellious heart take you over. I see it happening. It's going to bend your heart even further to a place you don't want to go. And don't you know you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ? the one who lived perfectly the royal law of love, didn't he? He lived the royal law of love perfectly. But not in this church. No, they were 
disobeying what Leviticus chapter 19 verse 15 says, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. A work, outworking of love. So how does favoritism break the moral law? Maybe that's what you want. We probably should go how does favoritism, how is you favoring someone in your family, say you have a daughter that's smarter than the other guys, and you might be favoring her, and she also has a better athletic skill, how might that be breaking the moral law? Well, I think you have to begin with the, the last commandment, the tenth commandment, which sort of applies to the rest. Covetousness, to covet, you shall not covet. Well, favoritism is a form of coveting, isn't it? Like in the day that we see in our text with favoring the rich, they were favoring probably the means of which rich and powerful people could advantage them, right? They covet that kind of power. We do the same thing today in the church, don't we? When somebody's popular and famous or rich, you, he gets a book and they put their face on it and then they market it and a bunch of people buy their book about how wonderful a Christian they are. This is still happening. We actually do this through an industry. I mean, it's almost like the Christian industrial complex. I mean, we should be promoting Christ and Him crucified, and that's it. Famous people, are they any more great than you? Are they any more inheritors of the kingdom of heaven than you? Are they any more saved than you? Well, they're not, are they? So it begins with covetous. And also, you are bearing false witness when you favor because you are communicating something that is not true when you favor the rich, when you favor one child above another. That is bearing false witness because it's not true. That's not how God sees them. And, of course, you're stealing in the ancient world. They were stealing the honor of that was rightly due the poor in the Christian community because they, too, were inheritors of all things, and they were stealing from them. And also, you could say they were not honoring them, and we can continue on and on. I do believe they almost break every one of the Ten Commandments by favoring, but we don't see that that way. We tend to isolate the commandments from the other. You cannot, because if you break the one commandment, you break all of them. Oh, do not commit adultery. Do not murder. But if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Or it actually, the word is transgressor, one who purposely breaks the law. Because the laws are connected, because they emanate out of the character of God. And who do you and who do we need to be like? Like God. Be holy as I am holy. So there's an argument behind the scenes. It makes sense that he's arguing this way. That if you break the law in one point, you break the whole. And favoritism is one of those, you're breaking the whole of God's law. And you're not blessing this, you're not blessing the church, you're not blessing your family, you're not blessing your daughter, you're not blessing your son. No. It ought not to be the way the church is. We ought not to care about our station or how much money we have or how popular we are. But we are attracted to good, pe better-looking people, aren't we? We are attracted naturally to wealthy people and influential people. We just need to say that outright. You are, aren't you? And better dressed. And I've gone to the hospital. Now, if you're wearing just like 
like a t-shirt, right, and pants. Of course, no one's going to look at you. But if you wear a suit and a tie, because I've, I've, I've actually done this, people will give you more deference because of what you are wearing. It's so simple. And yet, am I any more significant than anyone else on that elevator when I come out? They don't even know who I am, but I'm being judged by the outside. I'm not being judged by my character. I'm not being judged by my family. I'm simply being judged by what I dress. And so, like Samuel, we look on the outside. God looks at the heart. And we show favoritism on the most shallow of criteria. Here it was just those who were wealthy, and it was the wealthy that were actually causing troubles to the church. It's like, come on, you guys. James loves the believers and wants them to see if so adamantly favoritism ought never to be in the church. We are one body with one Lord, with one baptism, one faith. So there can't be favoritism. It undermines actually the whole of Christian theology. And so he speaks about God's judgment. And this is hard-hitting in verses 12 through 13. I want to read that again. Because he's already accused them, you are basically lawbreakers. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged. It's important for us to read that. Every single one of us will stand before the judgment of God. There's one time to die and then the judgment, as Hebrew says. You're going to be dying. Every one of us is going to die one day, and then we are going to face the judgment seat of the living God. We don't want to downplay that because then if you downplay that, you downplay Scripture and you get in the problem that the little favoritism problem favoring certain Scriptures over another because you like this one more than that one. But we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. He's saying that as a warning. He's saying that as a warning. He's not going, no problem, Jesus will be there, right? He will be there, right? At the right hand of God the Father on judgment day. He's interceding for us, yes. But when you come before the living God in that day, you come before a holy, holy, holy God, and you are not that holy. Only Christ's holiness is covering you because yours is filthy rags. So he warns them. He warns the church. You too are going to stand before the judge and be judged by the law that gives freedom. I like that language, the law that gives freedom. How do, how do many people view the law today in the, in the evangelical church? A positive or a negative? What do you often hear? Often the negative, right? Often the negative. But here, James, which what he, we know what he means. He means the Decalogue, the moral law. He says the law that gives freedom or the law that gives liberty. Now, it gives liberty, we know in this, in your salvation, that the law convicts you of sin so that you might know what sin is and thus then turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the law is good, right? Even Paul says that very clearly as he's wrestling with the law in chapter 7 of Romans. Secondly, the law... For the one who is born again of the Spirit of God gives us power to do what? To obey the law. 
Before we were unable because anything done without faith is sin. But now that we have come to faith in Jesus Christ and have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we do have a power to obey. And that's why he calls it the freedom or the law of liberty or the law that gives freedom. Now, I, maybe you can explain it like this. You are free to divorce your husband or wife. You're free to do that. But the consequence of that action, right, will lead to so much misery for so many people. It will make a new slavery for yourself that you could not even dare to imagine. Now, you are free to do that, but you will be enslaved by it. But now when the law says you shall not commit adultery, often this is in the same category too with divorce, when it says that, it's telling you there's freedom there, isn't there? The law keeps you from these vices and from these houses of slavery in order that you might be free. Like you are free to take various forms of illegal drugs or legal drugs, but what are the consequences to that lifestyle? Addiction, which is another way to have a banquet in the grave. You're, you're enslaved, aren't you? You were free to do it, but it enslaved you. But God's Word says be sober. God's Word says be content. And the man or woman who is content and sober, is that woman free? Is that man free? Absolutely. So the law of God is there that we might live as free men and woman, women under the power and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ through the indwelling Spirit. The law of freedom. So when you come to the Ten Commandments, again, my hope is you will come to them a little bit differently, and you will see not only ability to convict you of sin, which leads to freedom as you repent and, and trust in Christ, but also that you will see it and apply it so you will live a life of freedom and not addiction and not slavery. Be free, men and women. Hear God's voice and obey. I want to end with these two pieces here. He talks about judgment. Without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, it is clear, blessed are the merciful. I, I don't know what's happening here. Commentators don't really know what's happening. Why is he saying this here? Is the favoritism of the rich one of mercilessness to the poor? I think that's happening. There's no mercy for the poor. There's no mercy for the destitute. And here he says, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And what does Jesus say about the merciful? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
You can hear Jesus right here in this text from the Beatitudes, except reverse. Cursed is anyone who is merciless because he will should be shown no mercy on judgment day. Because the merciless man, the merciless woman, the unforgiving man, the unforgiving woman, what does Jesus say about them in chapter 6, verse 15? But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Because forgiveness is one of mercy, isn't it? But if you won't forgive other men and women their sins, God will not forgive your sins because you don't even understand forgiveness. You don't understand the mercy given to you in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is simply a rebuke. It's simply saying to the church, be merciful. Be men and women who are merciful to the poor, who are merciful to the down and out, who are merciful to the addict, who are merciful to the untouchable, who are merciful to those who have leprosy. Isn't that what Jesus was? Walking among sinners and the untouchables, and He touched them. And he spoke to them words of life. And so we, the church, need to be like Christ, merciful. That's when we will be blessed. But cursed, unfortunately, are the merciless. It's like the rich man and Lazarus. You know that story. La Lazarus was as poor as poor, but the rich man never paid him any attention, could care less if he lived or died. Well, when Lazarus died, the rich man died, and he was carried to Abraham's bo bosom or heaven, Lazarus, the poor man, but the rich man was cast into hell. I think this, this, this saying is right rooted in that parable of the Lord Jesus Christ. Weighty, weighty, weighty. But then James says something. I feel this weight here, right? You're going to be judged, right? If you show mercy, you will not be given any mercy. But then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's like it just jumps off the page. It's like, what's going on here? Mercy triumphs over judgment. What's he saying? What is James saying here? What mercy? What mercy triumphs over judgment? What mercy triumphs over judgment? God's mercy. And how has God shown you mercy? How has He shown you mercy? His Son, right? He sent His Son. And He took upon you the punishment, the judgment for sin. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And Jesus said at the cross, at the third, at three o'clock in the afternoon, it is finished. Mercy, God's mercy triumphs over your sin and my sin. And it's the only mercy that has the power to make you merciful truly to make us as a church merciful. It's the mercy that has changed the world and continues to change. And maybe this day, you need to experience that mercy because your life is a bit of a mess. 
and you're here, but you're really walking. You've been walking a long ways away from God. You're not near at all. And there's a weight here of judgment. But I want to bring you to a man. His name was David. He sinned in the most ugly and egregious way in the murder of one of his 37 mighty men, one of his good friends, Uriah, and an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And this is what he wrote in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me. You see, David understands that only mercy triumphs over judgment. Only mercy, God's mercy. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me, uh, before me. against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he finishes, save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O Lord, you will not despise. And James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He will lift you up. Why? Because unlike us often, he's merciful. Absolutely. To him be the glory. Let's pray, O oh, Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the saints that have experienced your wondrous mercy in the giving of your Son, and by your Spirit they saw and believed and came to this wondrous new life in order that we too might be merciful and be men and women who don't show any favoritism. Oh, Father, give us by your Spirit that truth living in us, in our homes, at our workplaces, right here in this church. Be glorified in us. Hear our prayer, O oh, merciful God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.